Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. Newspapers are looking for ways to reduce costs in a changing media landscape. One area many have turned to, ending home delivery and using the mail. We'll hear if that's a good idea and what it could mean for the publications. Why have some colleges made financial aid for black students less of a priority? Many see a correlation to the drop in enrollment among black students. Also, the health of a school building, it's not watched as closely as you might think, and an example happened in Decatur. We'll learn about efforts to restore a church in Chicago, which is key to the history of gospel music, and restoration is also underway on a former theater in Quincy. We're finally getting a dose of bitter cold weather this winter. We'll talk with an avian ecologist about how birds survive the cold and learn how communities along the Mississippi River are working together to handle the effects of climate change. Those stories and more this hour on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. The Washington Theater in Quincy was once an entertainment mecca. For years, the theater was home to vaudeville acts, then a movie house, before it was shuttered in the 1980s. As Marissa Ann Lewis-Thompson reports, an effort is underway to return that theater to its former glory. How would you like to see the projection booth? Let's see it. Brian, I'll let you go first. I'm following Jim Lawrence and Brian Hines up a dark, narrow staircase in the Washington Theater. Some movies might have had four reels of film. That's Brian Hines, the president of the Friends of the Washington Theater Commission. So in here is where they would store them all. So you'd have that big spool and just fit around there and then hold it in place. The theater is a treasure trove of different eras of its own history, from the stained glass windows and hardwood chairs to the original light board and panel. Intricate architectural details are scattered throughout the auditorium, but the wear and tear is noticeable. The ceiling has a large hole. Lawrence, also with the commission, says that happened after the building was neglected by its previous owners before the city of Quincy regained ownership. The roof started to leak and really caused quite a bit of damage um, to the architecture. The Washington Theater opened its doors in 1924 as a vaudeville venue to a sold-out crowd. Not long after, it was sold to Chicago businessmen, adding silent films to its roster. By 1929, it was home to the first viewing of a talking movie in Quincy. So this was a large venue and a main main event and a social aspect in the city of Quincy, and we just want to bring that back in a different way. For some Quincy residents, the theater was more than a place for entertainment. For Dan and Jerry Conboy, it was the beginning of a nearly 50-year love story. I guess I got up the nerve to ask her out for a date. She said yes, they saw the sting, and Jerry was captivated. The theater was just cavernous. It was just, seemed so huge. And the seats were red velvet and nice and soft and cushiony. They seemed like it at the time. The theater was sold again before closing its doors for good in 1982. Soon after, it was donated to the city. In 2003, the commission was formed to come up with recommendations on how to restore the venue. The commission has collected roughly $750,000 in grants. Hines says... Some of that money has been put towards major roof repairs. Because if you start working and, and doing stuff inside and making everything look pretty, but your roof isn't fixed and your foundation isn't stable and you're tuck pointing, you're just going to have damage. So why damage something 
you've done. So we had to do that stuff behind the scenes before we could do anything else. According to a 2006 feasibility study, a fully up and running Washington theater could bring in $6 million annually. But there has been some pushback. Some residents don't see the need for another event space. Others don't have a personal connection to the theater. You can't rely on, you know, several generations who have an experience with a past cycle. You have to create a really new story around the building that captures everyone. Michael Allen is a senior lecturer of architecture at Washington University in St. Louis. He says it is possible to get a younger crowd invested in preserving historic places. I think younger people are very responsive to restaurants and concert venues that are in historic buildings, buildings they may not know anything about. You know, they don't daydream about what happened there. 20 years ago, they're enjoying what's happening there now. The commission plans to transform the theater into a multi-purpose venue fit for concerts, plays, receptions, amongst other things. Hines says the restoration will take time and money, around the tune of 10 to $12 million for the first phase. Now, I'm not saying we're going to turn down somebody if they come up and say, you know what, I've got a couple million dollars and I'd love to. Absolutely. But we got to be realistic. The chances of that happening are slim, not impossible. Hines expects the theater will be operational within five to ten years. In Quincy, I'm Marissa Ann Lewis-Thompson. Now we check in with our friends at World Cafe for their Sense of Place series. Stephen Kaleo visited a special location that was foundational in the development of gospel music. Location has a big impact on how we experience music. The way a song travels throughout a space can take that music to a whole new place. And the folks at Ebenezer Baptist Church are experts at doing just that through gospel. I am one. I am one. This was the place where you would want to sing. I mean, because you could move an audience. That's music director Stanley Stovall. I'm sitting inside the 124-year-old church with Stanley, Reverend Daryl Person, and trustee Patricia Butts. They say it's the vaulted, coffered ceilings, painted sky blue, that carry and magnify Stovall's voice throughout the church. Now, just imagine what a whole choir must sound like. It was so moving. You could feel it. I mean, it was like a vibration in you, you know, because everybody joined in, and that's what God wants from us. But this isn't just an excellent place to hear sacred music. It's widely considered the birthplace of gospel music. To really understand the story of Ebenezer, Reverend Person says you have to start further south during the 1920s. So you were at the beginning of the great migration from the south, right? So you had people that would come to this community, the Bronzeville community, uh, looking for networking opportunities, really. I mean, they didn't call it that. They called it, I'm coming to stay with my brother or my sister because I need to get a job, a better paying job, get out of the, uh, the challenging south. And so they would come up here and they would come, there were a lot of churches Ebenezer was one of the main churches that they would, they would gravitate to, migrate to. 
Among those seeking a better life in Chicago was a musician and composer named Thomas Dorsey. His father was a minister, and Dorsey grew up hearing church hymns and black spirituals. Stovall says all of that found its way into his music. And it came out of jazz. A lot of people didn't know that, that the gospel came out of jazz because Thomas A. Dorsey was a jazz musician. And so his chords are different than you would hear in normal sacred music. And so when you would hear these chords, some people had a problem with it because they related it to jazz. If you see my Savior, tell him that you saw me, that you saw me. When you saw me, I was on I was on my way. You may meet some old friend who may ask you for me, ask you for me. Just tell them I am coming home someday, coming home someday. The leaders of Ebenezer at the time, Reverend James Howard Lorenzo Smith and music director Theodore Fry, were mesmerized by the possibilities of gospel. So uh, Reverend Smith brought Professor Fry and Thomas Dorsey together because he wanted something new and different to kind of bridge that gap between sacred music and something that was uh, more upbeat and more modern. Now, if you see my Savior, if you see Gospel musicians sought to incorporate more of the fervor and joy of African-American musical traditions, call and response, hand clapping, and foot stomping. And Ebenezer was the ideal place to experiment with this new sound, but says it was made for this. Dagmar Adler was the uh, engineer, and he was an acoustician, and he studied acoustics in the opera houses in uh, Europe, which was why and how we have inherited, uh, through his design, the fantastic acoustics here at Ebenezer. Um, and of course, that's one of our, our hallmarks, and it's why almost anyone sounds good here. So in the early 1930s, Dorsey, along with Fry, founded the first gospel choir in the U.S. And their new approach to sacred music struck a chord with churchgoers in Chicago and beyond. They raised some eyebrows. But as it continued, you know, they started to enjoy it and, um, and want to be a part of it. And it was something new, you know, it was something new. And uh, Thomas Dorsey was really, in very real sense, a, a trailblazer. I mean, he, he, he took those marching orders and, he, and he, did, he did a phenomenal, phenomenal job. One of his most enduring songs came out of those early years. Dorsey wrote, Take My Hand, Precious Lord, after his wife Nettie and their newborn son died. And seemingly the words, like drops of water from a crevice of a rock above, seem to drop in line with me on the piano. Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on. Let me stand. I'm tired. I'm weak. I'm worn. Through the storm, through the night. Lead me on to the light. Take my hand. 
precious Lord and lead me home. And what we did was we internalized it into a, the, what we call soul. And that's when you come out with the soul. I, I don't just say, why should I feel discouraged? It's more, why should I feel discouraged? It's, I'm adding soul, I'm adding notes, I'm adding things to it to make it. And then when I do that, the audience goes, wow, yeah, yeah, I can relate because that's how I feel. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on. Dorsey's contributions helped put Ebenezer on the map, and it became an essential resource for Bronzeville. You know, back in the day when we were growing up, this was a, a, a community that, you know, fell on hard times, and it was a lot of poverty, and so we had food drives and uh, pantries and all those other kinds of things. And it was also a prime meeting place for important visitors, like Martin Luther King Jr. We came to Chicago because he found in, in the pastors here uh, allies and supporters to help them uh, during the civil rights movement. And so you had uh, Adam Clayton Powell to come through here. Who else you had coming through? Uh, Ralph David Abernathy would come through here. Of course, Jesse, absolute Jesse Jackson, Reverend Jackson as well. And some musical icons like Mahalia Jackson. Oh my gosh. Uh, Stanley can give you the names. I mean, there's so many. Road lies in darkness. Lights burn low. Where will it lead us? No one seemed to know. Yes, there may be More than a century later, Ebenezer is still an important part of this community. But Reverend Person says protecting this piece of gospel history has gotten tougher. When the architects built this, they built this acoustically perfect and it, with good bones. This is good bones, but the bones are 100 years old. Reverend Person and his team have gone to great measures to keep congregation numbers strong to help preserve this historical gem. But we have to acknowledge the elephant in the room COVID hit. And so when COVID hit, that changed everything. And we're losing our churches. The past 20 years, we've lost a lot of churches through fire or through closing. The pandemic certainly did its, its violence against the church as it relates to some churches not even opening up again. And so that's another reason we're so motivated to restore this place. Ebenezer is in the midst of a fundraising campaign to get the money it needs to restore the church. 
our predecessors and members prior to us have done a good job getting us to this place, to this spot right now, but we have to go further if we want to be here another 120 years. And we, and we need help. We absolutely need help. Uh, right now, we have a, a $1.2 million project going on here at Ebenezer to restore uh, a lot of this building. That's phase one. They'd raised almost a million dollars at the time of this interview. They want to ensure this place is around for Chicago and for Bronzeville more specifically, even as the neighborhood changes, a place for the community to come together drawn by the power of gospel. Our guests who grew up in this church know that power better than most. This whole the, the room feet, that yeah. originally held 1,200 people going from one person standing up here or here on the floor with no microphone. Right. right. You don't need one of these. Right. Singing, <laughs> almost saying a phrase, and then everyone Everybody. repeats it. Like, oh my God, this is wonderful. I yeah, it was so moving. Lord, I am one. Through the storm. It Me on to the light. Thanks to Stephen Kaleo with World Cafe for that piece on the Ebenezer Baptist Church. Coming up, we'll talk about newspaper delivery. It used to be on your doorstep. Now more newspapers are turning to the mail. That story and more still to come. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. The number of black students enrolled in college in Illinois has dropped by over a third over the past decade. A big deterrent is the cost. Need-based scholarships are one way to make sure more of these students can sign up and finish school. But this type of financial aid is becoming less of a priority for many schools. Instead, they've targeted money towards students with high GPAs and test scores. Lisa Corian Phillip has more. Layla Granville looks kind of winded. She took two buses, the Green Line, then walked 13 minutes to get to class today. She lives on the South Side and is a freshman at Dominican University in the Western suburbs. It was a journey she had to get used to. At first, my legs were like hurting. <laughs> I hadn't walked that much in like a minute. But she's come to like the two hour commute. She uses the train ride to read fantasy novels. They're her favorite. I love strong female characters like the what I'm reading now, it's like a female assassin and she's young and she's like the best one. I'm like, you're amazing. So is Layla. She's majoring in biochemistry with a minor in physics, which is crazy considering college was almost not in the cards for her. It really came down to one factor. I know my family couldn't help pay for it. Research from Gallup shows black students like Layla often cite money as the biggest hurdle standing between them and a college degree. The Federal Reserve reports their families, on average, hold a small fraction of the wealth that white families do. Black students are more likely to have to borrow to cover tuition and to juggle full-time jobs with class. I didn't know how I was going to pay for college, even though I wanted to go. Fortunately for Layla, Dominican offered a lifeline, a scholarship program for students from low-income families interested in science that didn't require a high GPA. It's made it possible for Layla to go to college without taking on a bunch of debt or a job to pay her tuition. 
Instead, she can just focus on school. Seeing how stressed I am about like some of the classes and like the workload, I couldn't imagine working on top of it. I don't think I would have lasted. Many young people from low-income families don't get scholarships. Over the past two decades, colleges have shifted more and more money away from need-based scholarships to so-called merit aid for students with high GPAs and test scores. That's according to research from the think tank New America. That means instead of prioritizing full rides for low-income students like Layla, colleges are handing out what are basically tuition discounts to compete for high-achieving students who have lots of college options. Maria Bigham is with the equity nonprofit Accept Group. The students with the higher GPAs and the higher test scores are going to come from better funded schools. They're going to have more opportunities. Chances are likely that they have more in family wealth. College leaders defend the strategy. They say even with the merit aid, wealthy students pay more tuition and subsidize spots for students like Layla, who can't afford to pay any tuition at all. But researchers say the increased spending on merit aid has mainly benefited white, wealthy students, and it's actually reduced the number of low-income and black students on campus. Akil Bello with the advocacy group Fairtest says the issue is not that black and low-income students are not capable of getting good grades. It's that they're more likely to attend a high school with fewer supports and have other obligations competing for their time. Guess what? Poor kids who have to take a part-time job are going to have a lower GPA. Take Layla. When she was in high school, she worked at a Chili's restaurant on the weekends. She says her GPA was low and put her out of the running for most scholarships. And for Layla, getting a scholarship meant the difference not in where she went to college, but whether or not she could go at all. I don't even have to, like, look at my financial aid thing. I'm like, I'm glad I don't have to worry about it. Instead, she can focus on nerding out on her math and science classes. In her biology lab, she's been running genetic experiments. I kind of felt bad because you had to, like, knock out the fruit flies. Really? <laughs> yeah, to, like, um, separate their, like, eye color. You can Lisa Corian Phillip, WBEZ News. Naloxone is a medication that can reverse an opioid overdose. A nasal spray version called Narcan became available over-the-counter in the fall. That means it officially can be sold without a prescription. But what does that actually mean for public access? Side effects Public Media's reporter Morgan Watkins examined the initial rollout of over-the-counter Narcan. I popped into stores in Louisville and southern Indiana on a recent afternoon to see where I could buy Narcan over-the-counter. So I'm in a Target in southern Indiana. They have a CVS pharmacy here, and I am looking for Narcan. Narcan's new over-the-counter status opens up the possibility that one day it will be stocked on shelves not just in chain pharmacies, but in gas stations and smaller drugstores. I was wondering if your store stocks Narcan, the overdose reversal medication? Yep, it's going to be on the back. Yeah, I asked for it at the register. Awesome. Thank you so much. Always welcome. I only found Narcan in local big box stores. It was behind the front cash registers at a Walgreens and behind the pharmacy counter at a Kroger and a CVS. A two-dose box of the drug sells for 45 bucks. And so at this Target, pink boxes of Narcan had anti-theft devices on them that an employee has to remove. I did find Narcan out on a shelf with no anti-theft locks at a Walmart. The goal with over-the-counter would be that it just 
becomes another over-the-counter medication that you could pick up without any preparation. That's Ben Goldman. He works for Louisville Metro's Public Health Department. Goldman says as a public health provider, he wants access to Narcan to be as low barrier as possible. Cost is a major hurdle for many people, especially those who are at high risk of experiencing or witnessing an overdose. That's why Louisville's public health department gives out free doses of overdose reversal medication in the city. We're likely to be the provider of first and last resort still. Now that Narcan is available over the counter, Goldman and other experts say it's more likely that those who can afford the $45 box or have an insurance plan that covers it will actually pick one up at the store, just in case they need to help a loved one or neighbor. But community programs that distribute naloxone for free remain vital. Dr. Eric Yazel leads the Clark County, Indiana Health Department, which helps provide free local access to naloxone, including the nasal spray Narcan. He hopes over-the-counter availability of naloxone won't reduce grant money for public distribution efforts. I do think it's important to stress what we're doing out there so that people realize that these two initiatives need to go hand-in-hand, over-the-counter access at pharmacies and continued public distribution, that those two things shouldn't be mutually exclusive. Sharita Walden of the Kentucky Harm Reduction Coalition agrees. Even if it's in the store, does that mean it's still accessible? Meaning how can people pay for these things? So we have to take a look at what accessibility means. Walden says that more than anything else, Narcan being over the counter next to common cold meds and sleeping pills will show people the medication is a normal and necessary tool. It's about normalizing. It's about destigmatization. That is what I see this is. This is a step towards us destigmatizing what overdose prevention is, what health is, centering health. She says over-the-counter Narcan is one extra access point. The coalition and other harm reduction programs have spent years building pathways to meet people where they are and help them access naloxone at little to no cost. I'm Morgan Watkins, Side Effects Public Media. Well, more newspapers across the country are turning to postal delivery for print editions to cut down on distribution costs. But how might the switch change the news content? And how will all subscribers adjust to getting their papers later? Tim Franklin's director of the Local News Initiative at Northwestern University. And he talked with reporter Joe Deacon about why newspapers are turning to the mail and the impact it could have on the news industry. The three biggest costs of a local newspaper, of any local newspaper, are people, paper, and distribution. So what they're trying to do is reduce those distribution costs and do so significantly by switching to postal delivery. This is in part a cost-saving benefit, but I think there's something deeper too. Uh, You know, for more than a century, print newspapers were the vehicle uh, by which local news, breaking local news was delivered. Now breaking local news is delivered largely uh, online uh, or on smartphones or through social media or newsletters or other platforms. Um, so I, I think this also reflects, you know, the the kind of historic pivot uh, that's being made from print to digital. So as a result of that, the printed newspaper becomes something different. It's not breaking news so much as it uh, is providing context and enterprise uh, original local news and information that isn't of a breaking news nature. It's also listings and obituaries and m- many other things. So the paper newspaper is becoming a different kind of animal as a result of this digital revolution. So do you think this is a de-emphasis or reimagining of what the newspaper print editions will be? It's a repurposing 
I think of what the print editions are. I, I, I think that publishers and editors are recognizing that the print edition in some ways is becoming more magazine-like. It's becoming more of a vehicle to provide in-depth uh, information, to provide things like listings that people can carry around with them. It, it's becoming a little more of a coffee table type product, if you will, as opposed to this thing that you rip open out of the bag and read the lead headline for whatever the latest breaking news is. I think along with this, we're also seeing a reduction in print frequency at a lot of local news organizations around the country that have gone from seven-day print uh, down to six, and in some cases, even down uh, to just a couple of days a week. And I, th I think that that trend is only going to continue. Do you think, though, that news consumers might perceive this as a de-emphasis of the printed newspaper? I think some news consumers, especially uh, long-time uh, subscribers, may view it that way. And I think it's going to be critical for publishers and editors to communicate with their audiences exactly what they're doing with this. And in recognition of the fact that how people consume news has changed significantly, that they're having to change along with those change in behaviors by consumers. But I think the publishers and editors who switch to mail distribution and just keep doing the same thing they've been doing for decades may not be successful. In areas where this has already occurred, how have consumers received or adapted to postal delivery? We don't have a lot of research on that. Anecdotally, I can tell you that in other markets I'm aware of where they've communicated the change well, I think it's been okay. Part of this too is a change in how in people's daily habits, period. The newspaper arrives uh, in the mail, uh, sometimes mid to late afternoon. People now are getting up earlier and earlier in the morning to, uh, to go to work or to catch uh, the weather or traffic uh, on the television news in this morning. So it's often later in the afternoon or early evening before people um, read the daily print newspaper anyway. It's also kind of, I, th I think, a reflection of people's changing reading consumption behavior. To what extent is this really a cost-saving solution? Obviously, there's a lot of labor expenses involved with newspaper delivery, but on the other hand, postage rates continue to increase. With, as you said, newspapers facing an existential situation financially, how much of a savings can be expected? It can be significant. There are a couple things going on with, with uh, the traditional way that we've gotten newspapers over the many decades, which is a driver getting up in the wee hours of the morning, going to a distribution center, often stuffing papers in little plastic bags, throwing them in the back seat or the back of pickup trucks, and then uh, tossing them into people's uh, driveways or uh, onto their front porches or sometimes, unfortunately, behind bushes uh, where they can be hard to get. But it's become increasingly challenging for publishers to find the labor uh, to do that work. In a lot of ways, it's not an appealing job for many people to get up uh, super early uh, in the morning and or in the middle of the night in some cases and do those those home deliveries. Newspapers have had trouble finding labor to do that work and the labor that they are finding is becoming increasingly expensive. There's no question that that this switch to postal delivery is being driven in part or in large part by cost savings and in some cases pretty significant cost savings. Looking at the postage expense, obviously this switches a lot more responsibility to the postal service. How will newspapers adjust to these costs? It does switch more responsibility onto the postal service and, and postal rates, you know, have been going up and I and I think will continue to go up. And that's something that I think publishers are going to have to factor into their calculus when they're doing the math on making this switch. But I think even with that, 
you know, they still view this as being a cost savings. Another thing I would add is that I think a lot of publishers view this as kind of an iterating step over the long-term pivot to what they know to be a digital future. You know, more and more people are consuming on smartphones, on desktops, uh, on their laptops, and less so on print. So, uh, you know, print is still a significant revenue driver for many local publishers with local businesses uh, who still want to advertise in print. Uh, print readers, uh, t- you know, tend to be uh, high demographic uh, readers with disposable income, which is attractive to a lot of advertisers. So I-, I don't think print's going away anytime soon, but I do think this can be viewed as a as a bit of an interim step in that historic transition from print to digital delivery. So what do you think this says about where newspapers are headed and the future of local news? I think that editors are going to need to rethink uh, the print product uh, from top to bottom. You know, what is it? What's going to make it relevant to readers who are getting it uh, later and later in the day? You know, th- there was a time when, you know, newspapers held up their presses uh, to get the latest sports scores in, to get the latest election results in, to get the latest city council or school board meeting information in. And that's not happening anymore. Th- those results are going uh, straight to digital. So uh, given that, I-, I think editors need to reimagine, uh, re-envision what the print product is. And I think it is going to be more, as I said, magazine-like. It's going to be more in-depth, more contextual. It's going to include probably uh, more uh, long-form uh, journalism than it has in the past. But it's going to require, I think, editors to sit down with their staffs and, and really think through how the print product uh, is going to be different and relevant in a digital era. How can they do that, though, when it seems the size of newsroom staffs continues to shrink? Well, you know, um, I, there's no question that's that's happening, and it's happening at an alarming rate um, across the country. And... I think it's going to be a matter of using the staffs that are remaining in different ways and in better ways. So it could mean that, you know, having freelancers do more kind of commodity news or uh, standard fare kind of news, and then having your full-time staff writers work on more intensive, immersive, in-depth stories. I also think we haven't talked about this, that AI is moving very, very quickly. Um, and already, uh, publishers are experimenting with using artificial intelligence to write basic stories for them, uh, whether it's meeting covers, whether it's high school sports. Right now, I think we're a ways, a little ways off from uh, publishers being able to completely rely on AI for those sorts of things. But AI is coming, and so you know that also might help uh, local newsrooms become more efficient and be a tool that they can use for some of the basics. Tim Franklin is with the Northwestern University Medill School of Journalism. He talked with Joe Deacon about newspapers turning to mail delivery. We've got more to come on Statewide. Stay right here. We're back on Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. So how safe is your child's school? Illinois schools are inspected every year to make sure fire alarms and emergency lights are working. 
but the overall health of the building is not examined. That's why no one knew before this past summer that two buildings in the Decatur School District were starting to fall apart. We revisit this story from reporter Emily Hayes. Hi, we're great. Another school year is underway, but students from the Dennis Lab School in Decatur are across town at Garfield Learning Academy. Dana Granados is picking up her kindergartner for the day. We just recently moved here in June, and like the week after we moved here is when we found out the schools were closing, so we weren't sure what we were going to do. Even with a long family history at Dennis, grandparent John Shores Jr. didn't expect the disrepair to be so bad for his granddaughter. It was just kind of shocking that all of a sudden that the two buildings were condemned where they couldn't hold classes in them anymore. In all, 500 students were displaced after School District 61 learned they had structural issues with two of their 100-year-old buildings. Problems that didn't show up in 2013 during the last state-required inspection that was done by an architecture firm. It does not seem that this 10-year health life safety report inspection is by itself likely to tease out structural engineering shortcomings as far as I can see. James Lefebvre is a structural engineering professor at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. In an email, the Illinois State Board of Education said the survey will not catch structural issues unless they are manifesting in a visible way. District 61 only found out it had problems after they brought in a structural engineer in May to look at ceiling leaks and other issues brought up by teachers. Kevin Collins-Brown is a school board member. This is not an isolated incident, I'm sure. Decatur is not the only community with older schools. After the initial findings, a second engineering company confirmed that an outer wall in one of the buildings was bowing and a main staircase in the other was pulling away from the wall. After looking at the report, Lefebvre said the staircase issue could have had dire consequences. In the case of an emergency, when everybody's trying to exit the building all at the same time, and so it could be packed with people and completely loaded, and that's the time when it would most likely pose the greatest vulnerability of, of actual structural collapse. The only state data that gives us a sense of how much repair schools need comes from a separate two-year voluntary survey that was last done in 2022. About 1,000 schools were listed as needing structural repairs at a cost of $460 million. There might have been more because only half of the districts answered the survey. So what should be done moving forward? For starters, Kevin Collins-Brown thinks the State Board of Education should change the 10-year checklist to include structural inspections and cover the cost for districts. I propose these evaluations cover a broader spectrum of the um, building and the structural contents because, yeah, as bad as these buildings are, I still am not sure how they pass that inspection. And those picking up kids at Garfield Learning Academy felt the same. Even if it is expensive, John Shores Jr. thought the inspection should take place twice a year. Expenses and any cost if it's going to protect the children and the people that work in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, now they shouldn't even worry about that. <laughs> but the cost has been steep so far. Decatur Public Schools plans to spend up to $2 million this year on mobile classrooms because of the surprise issues at Dennis. Collins-Brown says they are also paying to have the rest of their 16 schools structurally inspected. There's no room to move anyone else if this were to happen again in this time frame, but also we don't want this to happen again. And none of this includes how much or where the money will come from to fix the problems at the lab school. As for changing the inspections to include structural issues, 
The Illinois State Board of Education says they follow state law for what's required and when it's done. The next 10-year health life safety inspection for dentists is due by the end of the year. I'm Emily Hayes. How many times in winter have you looked out your window and marveled at how birds survive in the cold? To find out how they do this, Nature reporter Kevin Boucher recently talked with Dr. Jeff Hoover with the Prairie Research Institute at the U of I at Urbana-Champaign. Winter is here, and at least for us humans, that means we can add extra layers when we're outside. And when we're inside, we can simply turn up the thermostat. But for birds that don't migrate, they don't have it that easy. Through the millennia, though, birds have developed ways to adapt and survive cold weather. For starters, birds shiver to generate heat and keep warm. Yes, they definitely do. And birds operate at a temperature of about 105 degrees compared to our 98.6. That's Dr. Jeff Hoover, an avian ecologist with the Prairie Research Institute at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. Colder weather affects all types of living organisms to where you need to get, get enough calories to maintain your body temperature. And so cold weather is particularly challenging for animals, but they've got ways of modifying their behavior and kind of some of the, some biological mechanisms by which they're able to somewhat deal with the cold temperatures beyond just having to, you know, eat enough to be able to survive the night. That's kind of what okay. winter birds are looking at on a day-to-day basis. Find enough food and not get eaten by a predator in order to survive whatever night is coming because I can't do anything at night other than roost and try to sleep. And one of those ways birds use to adapt to the cold is the way their veins and arteries are situated. So bloods in their extremities, like their legs, can keep as much warmth as possible. Kind of like nature's built-in liquid heat pump. One that I was reading about recently, um, which is, you know, kind of fascinating, is it's a countercurrent blood flow system. So uh, to the legs of a lot of bird species, the arteries and the veins are really close together so that warm blood leaving the, the core of the body and heading towards the extremities like their feet um, passes really close by to the cold blood that is down, been circulated through their feet and coming back. And so it actually warms the blood up a little bit before it gets back to their core so that it takes less energy to heat that blood to keep their core as hot as they need it to be at that like 105 degrees or so. That's okay. one. And, and and also just the fact that uh, bird feet are very different from human feet in that they oftentimes can like do fine in 30 degree temperatures or if, if the, the foot is maintained at 30 degrees, it can it can be done so without it damaging the foot. Whereas for humans, that's definitely not the case. Hoover says birds also keep cold at bay by fluffing their feathers. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So the feathers are another mechanism. They're sure. very, very good at insulating. And so birds are very capable of basically fluffing their feathers out on their bodies and doubling almost the, what the bird looks like in size just by having those feathers out. And that creates a much bigger layer of insulation. Think of it like a down jacket All or right. something like that on a person. And that's another way in which they can use their, their feathers to increase their ability to insulate. And also shivering. I think you had mentioned shivering. That's oftentimes something that they do a fair amount of overnight, especially 
if, if they're trying to maintain their core body temperature, and that can be very kind of energy demanding process sure. as well. Some birds that stay here in winter have long, thin beaks, which are great for getting soft-bodied insects, which are so abundant in summer. But how do these birds, specifically robins and mockingbirds and wrens, handle getting food in winter? One way is to change their diet. Yeah, those three species, Carolina wrens, American robins, and northern mockingbirds are all species that are actually resident year-round in um, Illinois. You're right. These are species that are not pigeonholed into only being insectivorous, or in the case of American robins, they, they tend to really go after worms a lot, but they'll right. eat it, whatever they can catch. They're able to also eat a lot of fruits, all the kinds of fruits that are on different types of shrubs and trees that kind of, they, they become very ripe in the fall, and in mm -hmm. the winter, they're just kind of sitting there. And so, these are the types of foods that these birds, if they're around in the winter, will definitely go after. Some birds that you see in winter just look like they're built for scavenging and finding hibernating bugs in the cracks and crevices of trees. I'm talking about woodpeckers and nuthatches. Yes, um, and, and for woodpeckers as well, they can also um, drill acorns open um, and drill through decaying trees. Um, and, and get at larvae that are hidden beneath the bark as well. So they have a, a very bark-based diet in general, and also they, they use their bills to create cavities that they can use okay. for winter roosting and for nesting um, in different times of the year. Um, but, but you're absolutely right. Um, yeah, there's, they... there's hidden larvae in the bark. There are hidden larvae or insect eggs in the bark. There's also um, overwintering larvae under the bark. Um, all of which are, are fair game for these birds that spend time on the tree trunks up and down, running up and down them. That was avian ecologist Dr. Jeff Hoover, who works for the Prairie Research Institute at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, and he was talking about how birds that spend winters here in southern Illinois have developed ways to adapt to survive in the cold. I'm Kevin Boucher. Climate change is bringing more extreme weather to cities all over the country. For communities along the Mississippi River, there's flash flooding from heavy rains, longer and higher floods in springtime, and prolonged droughts like we had this past year. Eric Schmidt reports on how cities along the river are turning to each other for solutions. Birds chatter in the trees above the River to Pear Greenway in the southern part of St. Louis. On this mild December afternoon, a handful of children practice soccer in a park right next to the bike and footpath that follows the river. Sound enticing? Beatrice Chatfield says not so much. It's just like an eyesore. There's trash and like debris and muck in it. The river to pair is less of a river and more of a large concrete drainage channel that winds from the Mississippi through the urban landscape before disappearing beneath St. Louis's largest park. Pedestrian Sam Rain says it's a nuisance. It's gross during the summer, it smells. We don't exactly like living right next to it. It can also be dangerous, especially closer to the Mississippi. Colin Wellencamp is the executive director of the Mississippi River Cities and Towns Initiative, which includes more than 100 communities. As the Mississippi River rises, the river to pair then begins to back up into people's basements and yards and small businesses and into the city. Hundreds of homes have flooded in the past. 
Wellencamp says St. Louis should look to other cities in the river basin who've learned to work with water instead of against it. Dubuque, Iowa is one. Mayor Brad Kavanaugh says back in the 1990s and 2000s, his city had a major flash flooding problem. They had six presidential disaster declarations in 12 years because of heavy rains that caused repeated damage in one part of Dubuque. Somewhere along the line, about 100 years ago, somebody buried a natural creek and turned it into a storm sewer, and it wasn't keeping up anymore. Kavanaugh says they spent nearly 20 years bringing the creek back into the daylight to provide a safe place for stormwater to flow and reduce flooding. And it works. Kavanaugh says they renatured the Bee Branch Creek, planted trees, grass, and native plants, which has helped Dubuque avoid millions of dollars in damages when there's heavy rain. He visited St. Louis's City Hall to share how the region can replicate the success and make something that's more than just an ugly drainage ditch. People don't say that about the Bee Branch. It is a linear park. It's one of the most beautiful parks we have in the city. It is a place where people ride their bikes. It's a place where people go and watch the ducks and the birds. St. Louis Alderwoman Ann Schweitzer was inspired. Incredible presentation. I learned so much and I am so jealous. Jealous because she wishes St. Louis had done the same. You know, I couldn't wish all day that things like this had been started sooner. But we're here now and we have a responsibility. It's not cheap, though. The Bee Branch in Dubuque had a price tag near a quarter billion dollars. But Midwest Climate Collaborative Director Heather Navarro says wetlands provide a lot of value. Whether it is absorbing floodwaters, helping filter pollution, reduce soil erosion. And so when you start to add up those numbers, that really starts to change the economics of the whole problem. She says it's worth the money. Projects like these are long-term investments. If you are going to increase the wetlands, for example, along a creek or a riverbank, and then, yeah, you can also use that for recreation, turn that into a park. And there's money on the table, billions from the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and Inflation Reduction Act. Flooding challenges are everywhere in the Mississippi River Basin. Wellencamp says just about all of the communities he works with have tributaries connecting to the river. Some of them are big and some of them are really small, but all of them need attention. There is some restoration work happening in the River de Pere. The Army Corps of Engineers wants to build a large flood retention pond near the top of the watershed. But for now, it's just a plan. Meantime, St. Louis leaders say they're excited about the idea of bringing more nature to the entire River de Pere and plan to launch a study to figure out how. I'm Eric Schmidt. That's all the time we have for this episode of Statewide. Thanks for being along with us. We'll return next week with more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. Find us where you get your podcasts through the NPR app and at nprillinois.org. I'm Sean Crawford, and Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois public radio stations.